I was glad when they said unto me, Let us go up unto the house of the Lord. Uh, that famous refrain of Psalm 122, verse 1, reminds us, doesn't it, that there's a gladness attached to not only being able to assemble, but the actual carrying out of it. And today, each of us have been granted that beautiful privilege. It's so good to be able to come together on this second day of this new year and to do that in a way that we are intending to please the God of heaven by carrying out these services in a way that would glorify and honor Him in every way. Today, as you come to the lesson, it's taken directly word for word from Galatians 6 verse 9. And just a few moments ago, that was read in our hearing as Mike shared that text with us. If you would be turning to that text in Galatians 6 verse 9, and we'll have more to say about that over the course of the lesson this morning. These introductory words, I hope, will at least put before you some of the ideas connected with a comparison that can sometimes be dangerous. The comparison goes somewhat like this. We understand that God has challenged us with the personal responsibility attached to our service in His kingdom. Work out your own salvation, He would say, with fear and trembling. Philippians 2 verse 12. And yet, as one gives thought to a passage such as that one, it brings you to about the middle part of that slide, which is something very familiar to us. The idea of work is something that probably rests often upon your mind and mine. We think about the particular professions, the work that you and I do. And quite often, that discussion has consequences for many of the other attributes and the comparisons that we make in life. There are some things that you and I consider, however, that can become a bit dangerous. We'll deliver some of those over the course of the sermon this morning. But may I say that the works which the Bible commands, and it does have much to say about that, but if we look at those the same way we look at the work that you and I do on a secular basis, some of those comparisons are really troubling. Some of them are really rather startling. And sometimes for that reason, it can almost lead us to look at the works of God in an inappropriate way. As you close that lesson, that particular slide with me, why don't we first look at some of the discussions in which works are mentioned, and then we'll use the second part of the lesson to perhaps draw the comparison and eliminate that matter in danger. So it begins like this. The Christian life that you and I enjoy... The life which the Bible encourages and endorses is a life, of course, founded upon the nature of the Christ and that which He makes possible for you and for me. And yet, in that light, we know that it involves works, good works that the Bible would, in fact, identify. So what are these good works and what does the Word of God have to say about them? Well, first of all, let's take a sampling of the verses and look at a number of the ways in which those good works are presented, and that will help us understand then what will naturally follow when we come to the next slide. But there about the middle of that slide, you'll notice that as far as good works, let's begin like this in Acts 10, 38. The one to whom you and I look, Jesus the Christ, it is said of Him that He went about doing good. In fact, among the things that Peter listed as he preached to Cornelius at that time, was you know about this Christ and you're aware of the fact that He went about doing that which was good. That, of course, references good works. 
The Lord Himself was given to these things. And you and I are taught to have the mind of Christ in us, Philippians 2.5. Therefore, good works should be that which is seen in you and me. But with that, look at what follows. Listen to this statement. And aren't you and I buoyed up as we hear the inspired writer say, Matthew 5.16, the reference to your life and mine, let your light so shine that they, that is to say people around us, may see your good works and glorify your Father which is in heaven. That means that even those who are about you and me, though they may not be persuaded religiously the way you and I are, they nonetheless should appreciate in you and in me sufficient good works so that there's a shining of your life and mine with respect to them. Let's don't stop there. After that one, you'll notice in Colossians 1 verse 10, as Paul began the Colossian letter, it was to that congregation that he was able to say that you may walk worthy unto all pleasing. But then he said this, being equipped, or at least being those given to every good work. So whether it be the general discussion of the Christian life in Matthew 5 or the particular congregation at Colossae, it was understood that good works would be a part of that which was their way of living. In Ephesians 2 verse 10, the marching orders given to all of us with respect to the way that we were created and why reads like this, You are God's workmanship, created in Christ Jesus, listen, unto good works. The Christian life, so far as you and I have seen it, is a life beautifully equipped and full of good works. So far among these verses, we've been challenged. We have been encouraged and even recognized the insistence of God that your life and mine be those described by good works. The next one will take us to that familiar text in 2 Timothy 3. When you and I give thought to the Word of God, we are so encouraged by the reality that it is inspired of God. But what does it make possible? That the man of God might be thoroughly furnished unto every good work. 2 Timothy 3.17 Now that doesn't leave out any of them. That means every work that would be particularly good, well if you please, directly ordered in such a way that would be suitable unto the will of God, the Word of God identifies it, describes it, and puts it before us. In Titus 2.14, speaking about Jesus and those whom He purchased, it is said of the Master there that He, of course, was one who redeemed us, but purchased to Himself a peculiar people. And then this statement is made, zealous of good works. Now this, for the first time, is one where we have actually seen that phrase, good works, matched with the word zealous. We, own, we know what zeal is. It is incorporated with enthusiasm. It's incorporated with a sense of passion. The people of God, you see, don't just involve themselves in works that God would call good, but they're rather passionate about this. Some translations read that word zealous. By way of a definition, as it means literally to burn up. God's people burn up with a desire for good works. May you and I ask of ourselves, 
Are we in that category? Are we so excited and thrilled and enthusiastic that that thought of good works can be appropriately seen in us that way? Identically, one chapter later in Titus 3, verse 14, Paul to Titus would write, Let ours, that you and me, also learn to maintain good works. Now, the maintenance of them, the continuance in them, all the while is certainly a very sterling thought. One last one on that slide would be the one that, oddly enough, we referenced at one point in the lesson last Sunday. In Hebrews 10, 24, consider one another to provoke unto love and good works. By now, we've already seen this phrase, good works, occurs in a lot of places. And as it's described, it is described as what pleases God, those works that He authorizes, and how that your enthusiasm and mine, of course, relates to them. The next slide will list only a couple more. But with it, we notice that they're based on the will of God, Hebrews 13, 21. And we finally notice one other grand benefit that comes with them. This is one, I suppose, that passes our mind on a number of occasions. If I may summarize 1 Peter 2.12, Peter, in writing to those of his day who, again, were often in a position of suffering or at least in inconvenient circumstances, he said, let your life be such that even those who do not believe will be led to appreciate the message that you live and they will come to glorify God because of your good works in the day of visitation. Now, that's a powerful sermon. I think the actual presentation of our bulletin article today touched upon that same idea. The primary sermon that some will only ever see is the sermon you and I preach by those works of the life that we live. Peter said the same thing there in that text in 1 Peter 2. With all of that said about good works, let's revisit the idea we began the lesson with. When you and I think of the word work, many of us have jobs, and so we work at a particular place of employment. We carry out tasks and duties there. Is there anything different between that kind of work and these works which the New Testament has so often referenced? And if there are differences, what are they? And how should we properly view the works recognized in the Bible? I've listed a few things at the bottom of that slide that may come to mind. I suppose when we think about the secular work in which we might be involved, there are several things that might well lead us to look with a bit of disdain on the work identified in the Bible. Let me list a few of them, and you might be able to add some more. Usually when you and I think about the work that we do for a living, for again, our secular employment, we might immediately think about the immediate reward that we gain. I'm doing this for a paycheck every week, perhaps every month in the case of some people, but at least there's an immediate reward. Sometimes those that look upon the works discussed in the Bible, well, what's the immediate reward? I don't see any. And maybe you and I might be tempted to then look with a bit less importance upon these works identified in the Bible. Well, I don't see a paycheck here. What about the second one? Not only might there be a matter of immediate reward, quite often we keep our minds set on the idea of promotion. 
to ascend to a higher status in that corporate world, if you please, and maybe to attain a position, manager, foreman, whatever other position that might well be. Is there any advancement in the Lord's kingdom? Any opportunity by way of these good works to thus occupy a place, a station, that might be higher than what was formerly known? For that reason, some again might become disenchanted with the works of the Bible. I don't see any promotion here. What about the third place? Recognition. There are some who are motivated in their secular work by the thought of recognition. They want to be idealized by the superior. I appreciate the good work you did. I understand that you sacrificed in order to bring that about, and I want you to know I'm aware of it. And so the compliments or perhaps the commendations are something that, again, means a great deal. When it comes to the works of the Bible, what if there's no commendation coming? Well, nobody said thank you to me. Well, nobody made any statement about that they appreciated that which I did. Maybe that could become discouraging. What about in the fourth place? There are times when I suppose secular work can become a bit monotonous, especially if it's a kind of job where you're doing the same thing very often, very frequently. Does the work of God ever become monotonous to you and me? Does it ever reach a point wherein we not only are unenthusiastic about it, but we've reached the point this is dry and it's boring and it's dull? If so, I fear we've allowed our comparison to secular work to trouble our thinking when it comes to the works of God. What about the next one? Sometimes you and I might hate some of the things that we must do in terms of our secular job. We have a great dislike for it. Sometimes that comes about on bases, which sometimes are seasonal in character. Do you and I ever hate the work of God? Do we reach a point where we have such a dislike for it that it might well be said that it's not only unpleasant, but we really detest it? If so, I fear again, maybe we've allowed our comparison to secular work to trouble our thinking as it relates to the work of God. Nextly, what about the hours? When we and I think about our secular job, we understand that there's a set number of hours that we dictate with regard to it. For some, it's 40 hours. For some, it may be more. Do you and I limit our service to God in some way? Do we think, well, I've given Him enough this week. I'm going to use the rest of the time for some other chore, some other desire that I may have. What about the next one? Maybe in the grand scheme of things, we begin to think our secular job, we might begin to ponder, look, if I don't do this, somebody else will do it. It's not that important. Maybe that's true and maybe it's not. But oh, how dangerous it would be if we ever begin to think that the good works of which we've studied in the Bible are unimportant, that they're inconsequential, that they really don't matter. The final one that I chose to list. Sometimes in our secular job, we have a boss that doesn't behave as we would think he or she should. Sometimes the person might well be a rather rotten scoundrel. 
doing things that are not only unethical, but doing things which, quite frankly, are inconsiderate. Do we ever begin to think of our boss when it comes to Christian works this way? Again, if we do, maybe we have dangerously begun to tread on places that the Bible would quickly challenge us with. On this next slide, as we continue this line of thinking, why don't we do the following? Let's reach a point then where we begin to list a few matters taken from the Word of God that might help us make sure to keep our mind directed toward the good works of the Word of God, but do so in a way that we never allow ourselves to fall into a bad pattern by comparison to the secular work of the world. And so at the top of that slide, the text before us is Galatians 6, verse number 9. Allow me to read it again. The churches of Galatia, recall, were congregations established in the southern part of what we would call modern-day Turkey. They were congregations that we first encounter in Acts chapters 13 and 14. They were begun by Paul as that particular missionary journey went its course. But those congregations, of course, had some rather trying moments. Paul had this to say, Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Now that congregation, or those congregations I should say, were congregations that you might recall that chapter 6 of Galatians said a number of things that helps us understand the circumstances that were a part of the issue. These congregations were in a bit of a difficulty. The Roman oppression and some of that which went with it were causing a bit of challenge. It was easy for them to fail to bear one another's burdens. They could become selfish. They weren't as interested in good works to benefit others as they ought to have been. And Paul to them said, Bear ye one another's burdens, and so fulfill the law of Christ. Galatians 6 verse 2. He pointed out to them, If you see a brother or sister erring, you go after them, seeking to restore them. That's a great work, isn't it? But you might notice in verse number 9, he particularly said, let us not be weary in well-doing. When the Bible identifies these good works, when it sets the idea of them before us and details what they are and how they're to be done, we've already noticed that there's a number of great differences between those things and the kind of work we might well be doing in the secular world. Sometimes we might get weary of work in the secular world. We get tired it begins to weigh on us due to its monotony, due to the boss, due to any number of other factors which might be the case. And yet Paul says, don't you ever become weary in well-doing. As you and I then launch into what is this calendar year or even in other aspects of our life as it relates to serving God. May I suggest that the injunction of this passage is as meaningful as it has ever been to those of that day. May we never allow ourselves to be weary in well-doing. These good works that God identifies, they are important. They're vital. They're needful, among other reasons, because He commanded them. 
but we also know that they benefit the general cause of Christ. And we are here told, let us. I know that last Sunday, the lesson was entitled, Let Us. And we use the book of Hebrews as our text at that time, looking at a number of places in that book in which we were motivated to do something. Well, today's lesson has another let us. And this time it's let us not be weary in well-doing. That word weary, as it's translated there, literally means to lose heart, to become unenthused about and to perhaps approach a feeling in which one's hands are drooping in despair. Are you and I ever in a position to allow our work for the Lord to be described this way? The feeble knees and the hands that droop due to unexcitement or due to weariness, due to a lack of enthusiasm. Paul would say to these Galatian congregations, don't let yourself come to that position. Let us not be weary in well-doing. Now, as you close that slide with me, we encounter the first of a number of descriptions which I'm hopeful will be helpful to each of us. How, what are some things we might do to help make sure that we see that distinction between the kind of works that the Bible would discuss and those in the secular world that we tried to list earlier? First, you'll notice the first three of those in that list I mentioned earlier had something to do with an immediate response. Maybe it was promotion, maybe it was a paycheck, maybe it was commendation from the boss or our superior. In this case, might I suggest, may we never allow ourselves to become weary if we do not receive an immediate response. So perhaps we endeavor in some work for the Lord, and those who are benefited by it never say thank you. They never offer a kind word and reply response. That does not mean God didn't see it. Didn't Jesus refer in Matthew 6 to our Heavenly Father who, in fact, is able to see even in the matters of privacy? And even that kind of work He will reward. So even if we do not receive what might be a thank you from someone blessed or benefited by what we did, may we not allow that to bring us to a point of inactivity? to a point in which we don't care, to a point where we give up on that kind of work. It is something to notice as you look at some of the comments I would ask you to make after it. Look at these examples. In Matthew 13, beginning in verse 1, there's a wonderful description of a parable we often call the parable of the sower of the seed. And it's a parable rather familiar to each of us. A sower went forth to sow, and some of the seed fell on the wayside soil. May I point out, it didn't grow a thing. Some of the seed fell on stony ground, and although the plant came up, it didn't bear anything. Some of the seed fell on, stony gro- or on thorny ground, and although it again grew, the thorns choked it out. It didn't bring out anything. It didn't bear anything. I wonder how the sower felt. He sowed seed. Four different places the seed fell. Some wayside, some stony, some thorny, some good ground, and only one of them brought forth anything. 25%. 
That didn't mean the sower didn't sow. It didn't mean the sower didn't carry out that which was expected. But the reward wasn't from the wayside soil. And it wasn't from the stony ground or the, stone, or the thorny one either. Maybe that's an indication to you and me that as you and I sow the seed, carrying out the good works that are thus described, even if we only get a 25% reward, even if only 25% out of the seed sowed brings forth anything, you and I should realize that's what Jesus taught. There are times that we will invite others. Come with me to church services. We'd love to have you. They don't ever seem to come. Much to our chagrin, much to our disappointment, they just don't seem to have an interest. Don't stop inviting. Just because they hadn't come, don't mean they never will. The card that we might send, maybe the person never says thank you, don't stop sending them. Praying for someone... Maybe you even shared the fact that I've been praying for you and maybe they never respond in a way that they're appreciative of it. Don't let us stop praying for them. Let us not be weary in well-doing. Just because we don't get an immediate reply, an immediate response that's positive. What about number two? Sometimes the timetable is not particularly to our liking either. Now, this really connects to the first point that we made. But isn't it true that for our secular work, we again appreciate there's an immediate timetable. I work today, I'll get paid next week. I work today, the promotion will come in six months. I work today, and maybe I'll be able to enjoy some particular benefit in a rather short time frame. But isn't it true that sometimes our God operates on a different time frame than we do? In fact, that's most often the case, isn't it? Aren't we reminded in 1 Peter 3, 8 that one day is with the Lord's a thousand years, and a thousand years is one day? That passage in 2 Peter 3, 8, among other things, reminds us that our God, you see, is beyond the realm of time. But isn't it true? There's a lot of Bible examples about timetables that surely were different than what would easily relate to physical work. I've listed a couple of them for you from the book of Genesis. You might recall Abraham with me. Here was the man often regarded as the father of the faithful. And in Genesis 12, God brought him out of Ur of the Chaldees and made him a fourfold promise. And among other things, he was told that your seed will be plentiful. At the time, he didn't have any children. Seems odd, doesn't it? So did Sarah get pregnant the following year? What about two years later? Neither of those two. It would be 25 years before Isaac was born. 25 years. 25 years! And he was age 100 by the time, and she was 90. May I again say, God's timetable is not ours. So let us not be weary in well-doing, for those good works we do now may not bear the fruit we would like to see in the next month. Maybe five years from now. It may be 25 years from now. But let us not be weary in well-doing, even if we don't see the fruits when we would hope to see them. Another example might be this one. 
Also related to Abraham, do you recall that God told him, your descendants will occupy a land. It'll be a wonderful land. May I ask, did Isaac ever live there? Did Jacob ever live there? Neither. It would be almost 500 years before his descendants occupied that land. 500 years Isn't that another reminder that that promise that God gave, it was such that it was to be fulfilled a rather far distance into the future from Abraham's day. Again, let us not be weary in well-doing. Just because the timetable doesn't seem to match what often the circular world does. Number three, let us not be weary in well-doing. For may we appreciate this, there is to be a realization of the blessing of Christianity and, of course, the hope of heaven. There's really little doubt that the chief reason that a Christian might well grow weary is because the person loses sight of heaven. If we begin to focus too much on this world, its money, its possessions, its things, all of that which it has to offer, and we lose sight of heaven, that may well be the chief reason we might become weary in well-doing. Our attention is turned away from the right place, the right source. And so on that slide, could I encourage each of us to keep our focus upon those things above? Colossians 3, verses 2 and 3. The Hebrew writer would put it like this in Hebrews 12, Wherefore, seeing we are compassed about with so great a cloud of witnesses, let us lay aside every weight and the sin which has so easily beset us, And let us run with patience the race that is set before us, looking unto Jesus, the author and finisher of our faith. We look to Jesus. No wonder in that regard, the final comment of that one would take us to the Lord's rather well-known description of Mark 8. Speaking about the comparison to the world of work, do you recall Jesus putting an expression that looks like this? What shall it profit a man if he gain the whole world and lose his own soul? Or what will a man give in exchange for his soul? So if a person were able by some means to acquire enough funding and money and other things, you could buy every square inch of real estate on planet earth. Well, you'd certainly be very wealthy from an earthly standpoint. But yet if you lose your soul, what have you gained? What have you gained? Jesus said, you've come out the loser. And so one of the encouragements from Galatians 6, 9 will be, in order for you and me not to be weary and well-doing, let's not lose sight of the destination, the finish line, the goal, if you please, that final place that we long to be. With all of these things in mind, there's only two rather brief ones, and then the lesson will be yours. And these brief ones begin like this. Did you notice one of the statements we haven't emphasized yet from Galatians 6, 9 was this, Let us not be weary in well-doing, for we shall reap if we faint not. Did you notice the promise in that? He didn't say you might reap, you could reap, you may reap. He said you shall reap. There's a definiteness connected to those works in the Lord. And therefore, we have yet another motivation to be faithful, for God promises that they will ultimately bring about those wonderful blessings that we might hope that they would.
ye shall reap if ye faint not. In Philippians 1.23, Paul seemingly felt that way, didn't he? He could describe his own thoroughfare of work for the Lord. And there he said, Whether I live or whether I'll die, Christ will be magnified in my body. We've been studying a bit about that passage on Wednesday evening in our Bible study class. And yet, as we see it appear here, what a motivation it is for not being weary and well-doing. The fifth and final observation that I might make has a distinction between the secular work world and the works of the Bible are the nature of God's commands. Earlier we noted that sometimes our work can be monotonous or maybe it's less than enthusiastic, and yet 1 John 5, 3 says that God's commands are never grievous. So they're not boring, they're not dull, they're not lifeless. God's commands are not in that category. But not only that, there is no restricted timetable. Jesus said, I must work the works of Him that sent me while it's day, for the night cometh when no man can work, John 9 verse 4. You and I thus with excitement carry out these good works when we have the opportunity, regardless whenever that might be. And finally, our boss is so terrific. Sometimes our earthly bosses are less than ideal. We understand that. They have their positions of judgment and their positions of perspective. But Genesis 18.25 says, God is always right. He's never going to command what's hurtful. He's never going to command what's injurious. He's never going to command what is not notable and worthy for that which is right. Shall not the judge of all the earth do right? Most of us, most people, I think, have a basic sense of the value of what's right. And yet, God is always an endorser of what's right. Let's close this lesson then like this. It's been our goal today to at least look briefly at encouraging ourselves with regard to not growing weary and well-doing. We've looked at several motivations for that, and we've used the comparison to secular work to help motivate some of those statements. Today, in this assembly, perhaps there's one or more that maybe upon recognition of the good works the Bible describes, you've come to realize that your life is not exemplary of them. That is to say, you're not being one who has been given to doing them. You can make that right. Jesus would be honored, and at this point, He's excited at the thought of helping your life become what He knows it could be. Only He knows, maybe at this point, how He could take your talents, the abilities you have, and of them to do so much good for His kingdom. But He needs you to relinquish control of your life to Him in order to make that happen. Let us not be weary in well-doing, for in due season we shall reap if we faint not. Today, if there's anyone in this assembly that would wish to respond publicly, we want you to know that we are here with open arms, and more importantly, the God of heaven is, with a desire to forgive from you what all all the sins may have been, and to equip you like never before with good works so that His kingdom might be honored and you could be His fellow laborer. If you've never become a Christian, the Lord commands of you to believe in Him, to repent of your sins, to confess His name, and to be baptized. 
If you need to return to that way of faithfulness, though, He commands of you to repent and confess. And then we as a congregation would be honored to pray to God for you. Any of that could happen today. Let us not be weary in well-doing. And if you'd like to begin those journeys, even now while together we stand and sing, why don't you do it?